Hey guys, welcome back to the Woodshed. This is Brother Jonathan. I'm going to be with you for another episode here as we deal with a controversial topic that really shouldn't be controversial, but in today's world, something the church is having to address, and that is the issue of drag queens, transvestites, female pastors, this whole Uh, this whole complex issue of men and women and how God designed them. So stay tuned here to the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. All right, guys, let's jump into it. Our first topic and one that we'll probably be dealing with exclusively today is the topic of this, uh, the difference between male and female. And is there a, a true definable difference? Are the lines blurred between the two somehow in the New Testament church? Uh, we see a lot of this that's going on in our culture and our society around us to where they no longer want there to be this, uh, this masculine, Figure of man, this feminine, uh, soft, uh, you know, uh, image of a woman, but rather they want to merge the two into almost this androgyny, and then also divorce the idea of uh, of male anatomy from masculinity and uh, female anatomy from femininity. And so they want to blur the two and distinguish the two from uh, sex and gender, differentiate the two into separate categories to where you can have a feminine man, you can have a masculine woman, and somehow that those are okay, that that is uh, uh, perfectly normal when it's very much abnormal. Now we start out in the book of Genesis and we see immediately within the first two chapters of Genesis that God creates man and that God creates man male and female. He creates them separately. And so he creates two distinct creatures or two distinct sides of humanity. He creates a man and he creates a woman and that's it. We have a biological man, we have a biological woman. We go on into the book of Genesis, and when the curse is given, after the fruit is taken, rebellion against God is declared, a uh, a sidedness with the rebellion of the devil against God, that God has to come down and he has to curse the things that have rebelled against him. So now we have uh, Satan is cursed. We have the beast is cursed. We have the man that is cursed. We have the woman that is cursed. We have um, the planet itself is cursed and thorns and thistles and briars begin to spring up. The earth begins to devolve. God creates everything perfect and everything begins to devolve. So as Christians, we don't believe in evolution. We actually believe in de-evolution, that everything was created perfect perfect in its original context, and it is unwinding, or it is getting worse. It's getting more perverted over the years. We're more uh, drifting away from God's perfect design and His perfect plan for humanity, for creation, for the planet. Uh, And so we're getting further and further away from the way that God designed things to be. We're not getting better as a people. We're actually getting worse as a people. And so we're uh, not inventing new ne- new evils because Ecclesiastes tells us that there's no new sin under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. And so in that, we're just, uh, we're just perfecting it. We're spreading it. We're glorifying in it. We're wallowing in it. We're parading our pride. We're doing all of these things against God's design, against God's natural uh, uh, connotation for all of creation. We even see in the curse that the curse of a woman was different than the curse of the man. The curse of the woman was very much uh, domestically focused. It was uh, uh, childbirth and and labor and rearing up of children and the wanting to catch from behind and overtake her husband, wanting to rebel against that authority that God placed her on under as his helpmeet, as his uh, as his helper. And so that was all of the curse that was put upon the woman with the man. Now no longer is life easy, but life becomes a, an existence of work and toil and struggle against 
fallen creation to try to have a household, to try to be a man, uh, to try to make things better and cultivate and grow and establish and, and have a civilization and have all of these things. Those are all part of the man's curses. Now there is it's laborious. Now life is one of labor. And then for the woman, that there is labor in childbirth and child rearing. And so we have the curse upon the woman was intended to be domestic in design. The curse upon the man is industrious in design. There's two distinct curses there. Now, because of our de-evolution in society, because of us our giving over to the secular culture around us, we've begun to blur even those two curses. And, um, and to the detriment of women, not to the detriment of the man, but uh, to the lost fallen man, the world today is a wonderful place. I mean, there's, uh, there's uh, guilt-free sex. There's uh, killing the children so you don't have to pay for, to have them raised. There's uh, it's very much more as uh, feminism has taken over and liberalism has taken over. It's become much more advantageous to a sorry male than it has been to a woman whatsoever. So now women not only have the domestic responsibilities. Not only is she expected to uh, keep the house, to raise the children, to bear the children, to birth the children, to to raise the children, but uh, she's also expected to be industrious and go out into the world and make a living as well. You know, now there's two income households where she's having to bear Adam's curse while Adam doesn't really have to bear Eve's curse. There's no breastfeeding for men. Uh, there's chest feeding for uh, Buddha judge, but that's not real. That's just fake. That's just putting a, a synthetic formula and, and, a, and a bottle uh, into a prosthetic and you know making it look weird. I mean, man, you know, imagine the problems that kid's going to have growing up. But the you know, but in that there's there's none of that. The man can't wake up and breastfeed the child at night while the woman uh, you know slumbers because she has work the next day. Uh, no, that still involves her. And, you know, we can try to get around that by, you know, uh, feeding the children synthetic formula, uh, you know, a science experiment versus what God created and God designed for there to be. We, you know, we can try to escape and work around it. But in that, according to the true nature design without involving, uh, you know, our own scientific endeavors and experiments, uh, if we're relying just upon what is natural or normal, then the man has no capacity to be able to do that. And so the woman very often has to carry a heavier load than God designed for her to carry. Meanwhile, the man carries a lighter load than God designed for him to carry. And so God creates these two separate creatures, male and female. He creates, uh, you know, and then upon the fall, there is a curse that is separate. There is a curse for the woman. There is a curse for the man. God is separating them out. He's di he's divvying out the pie of the family and the responsibility and gender roles and all of these things. It's how God created it to be. And we see throughout Scripture that this is echoed, that this is shown, that there is a difference between male and female. There's a, a grand appreciation for the feminine, and there's also a great responsibility placed upon the masculine. So there are things that are expected of men. God expects for men to lead the way. He expects for men to be the priest of the household. He expects men to take the, the leading charge in the spiritual formation of the family, in the providing and the protection of the family. God designed that to be in the realm of the man. And then in the realm of the female, she is much more of the culture of the household. She, uh, she often takes from the man the things that he delegates to her in the responsibility of the household, and she becomes the woman of the house. She becomes a housewife or a homemaker, and she turns a, a building into a home. And she turns, uh, you know, sticks and bricks into a place that's filled with love, that's filled with nurturing, uh, a place that's filled with education, a place that's filled with excitement and, and a, a love for life and a grandeur for the world that's around them. And that all comes out of the feminine. And so the mothering, uh, the uh, culture setting, all of that is very much 
given over to the woman. You see very often where women are more artistic, women are more um, emotionally inclined, they're much, um, you know, sometimes they're much more studious in a way than men are. And men much more are drawn towards uh, risk and danger, uh, towards, um, you know, working with their hands, doing hard labor, uh, striving together for an accomplishment, uh, you know, identity uh, of us and them. That's much more uh, given over into the masculine. We even come down into uh, Deuteronomy where the law was being given by God. And once again, he reiterates these divisions. He reiterates all of these things. And we come into Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. And there we have this little gem that's sitting there that's become quite a controversial uh, scripture even though it's thousands of years old, we should have had this figured out a long time ago, but we just stopped reading the book. We started reading mag magazines. We started watching the television. We started getting our culture as Christians instead of from the holy book of God. We started getting it from the holy television of the world. And our pulpits got into this uh, Jesus-only, salvation-only, theological minimalism uh, idea to where we just need to tell them enough to get them saved, but not enough to confuse them, just enough to get them into heaven, but not to get them into heaven with any rewards, with any crowns, not to, you know, don't tell them anything that's any earthly good, try to separate the spirit from the physical. And, uh, and so what it's resulted in is uh, at least two to three generations of churchgoers who are biblically illiterate who can't define the very basics of our faith. And so they think that it's just simply not there because they haven't dug it out themselves. They haven't been equipped or empowered to do that. And the pulpit turned into a place of entertainment instead of a place of education. That it confronted no, no issue of the world that was going on around them, but rather it just became a place where we come in, we hear a story about how we need to get saved, even though we've been saved for 20 years. The preacher thinks he did a good job because he included some kind of cute you know, phraseology. All of his points started with the letter R or the letter P, and so he patted himself on the back and thought, what a great job preaching I did. And he might have preached, but he didn't say anything. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, here we have a thousands of year old verse that says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Once again, we see a very clear distinction that some things are man things, some things are women things. God created masculinity, he created femininity, and he expected those two things to remain separate. That there are some things that pertain to a man. There are man's clothing, there are man's instruments, there are man's tools, there are man's garments, there are men's shoes, and that those things pertain to men. And at the same time, there are woman things, and that there are women's clothes, there are women's shoes, there are women's cosmetics, there are women's, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, books and literature, there's women, uh, you know, that there is a masculine and that there is a feminine, and that the things of the feminine belong to the woman, and that the things of the masculine belong to the man. And so the man should be engaged in masculine endeavors, the woman should be engaged in feminine endeavors. And so when a man begins to take on the feminine, he starts to become effeminate and that that is an abomination to God for a man to be effeminate on purpose, for him to desire, for him to long to, for him to gravitate towards, for him to adopt those things which are feminine in nature to himself, that that's an abomination to God. 
At the same time, we have the feminine. And so we have the woman and her femininity. And for that, she is to embrace femininity and that she shouldn't go questing after masculine attributes, that she should remain feminine. She should remain delicate. She should remain soft. She should remain as God created her and crowned her with this specific, unique gifting of femininity and that that's the realm that God designed for her. And that's what God expects for her is to be feminine, and that God expects for the man to be masculine. So if a man fails to be masculine, he is disappointing God. He is sinning against God's nature of how God designed and commanded him to be. And then at the same time, if the woman fails to embrace femininity and instead wants to uh, slunk over towards masculinity, then uh, she is sinning as well. She is creating an abomination, a uh, moral... Uh, you know, just a moral uh, um, disgrace upon herself by abandoning where God created it to be and leaving for something that she herself starts to place a greater value upon. You see, in Scripture, what we never see is we never see God placing a greater value upon the man than the woman. We never see God place a greater value upon the woman than he does the man. But we do see that God gives different roles and different expectations and different demands upon each one, upon men and upon women. And he expects for the men to carry out those expectations, to meet those demands, to follow those commands, and that at the same time, he expects for the women to do likewise as well. And whenever they blur that, whenever they rebel against God's design and his purpose and his plan, that he calls that an abomination. That's as, as powerful of a word of, of detesting, of hatred that God uses in Scripture. So there should be no blurring of the distinction between man and between woman. Now, we see that in our society today constantly to where our culture is trying to blur these lines. They're trying to take the, the uh, action hero, the Superman, the, uh, the, the um, commando in war, the uh, super martial artist you know, in the action movie, and they're constantly wanting to either cast a female lead or to remake movies that were masculine in nature with an all-female cast. And so you have the 110-pound super secret spy that can do flips and tricks and all these aerial you know, kicks and, and uh, ninja kung fu stuff, and uh, she can totally demolish these 6'4", 260-pound uh, you know, uh, Navy SEALs. It's just dumb. That's not going to happen in real life. It, it only exists in Hollywood. Um, and what's funny is that the guys don't really want to see it, and the women don't really want to see it either. And so it, it appeals to a very small sliver in there of feminine comic book, you know, Cheeto-stained, you know, fingered boys, and then at the same time to a very thin sliver of just rebellious women um, are the only ones who are even interested in that stuff, but they perpetrate it time after time after time again, trying to show us these things that are against nature that just simply don't happen. Now, can you get a female who is stronger than a male? Yeah, you can go and you can find the lowest of the low on the male on the male standard, and you can find the strongest on the female standard. Put them up against each other, and uh, yeah, the female probably has a good shot against them. But if you take a average man with an average woman, then uh, man, it, you know she is really going to have to be something super special with technique to even stand a chance. It's not even fair. That's why we see constantly with the, the men participating in female sports, with the swimming, with the track, with the, with the um, volleyball, with basketball, with all of these things where uh, these young men decide that they want to play as women on women's teams and they completely demolish them. They go from being very average on the male teams to all of a sudden sliding over to the female side and absolutely dominating. 
Now, why isn't the 110-pound, you know, 5'3 girl able to dominate the 6-foot-tall 280 boy who is saying he's a girl? Well, because God made them different. That's why. Because there's masculine, there's feminine. That's why. Because God created men for a certain purpose and designed their body in a certain way. And he created women with a certain purpose and designed their body in a certain way. Men and women are just different. They've always been different. This isn't a new thing. It's just new to us because we got really foolish for a long time. And so the lost world has wanted to tear down everything that has God's image, has his likeness, has his perfection in it. And there's no greater war going on against God today than against the male and against the female design. That's it. If they can do anything to bring down the masculine, if they can do anything to bring down the feminine, then they have achieved themselves. They've they've won a small victory in the everlasting battle against God. And so that's it. They just try to cheapen God's design. They try to bastardize it, but they can't really do anything permanent with it. So what we see in feminism is feminism has just made women really bad men. And it's made men just really bad women is all it's done. The ones who give over into that mindset, all they've done is turn women into free prostitutes. They've they've turned them into additional sources of income to where now men are picking out their women based upon their career path and how much additional income they can bring into the household. And women are delaying longer and longer and longer on getting married. Uh, their standards, they're looking for masculine men and they're not finding it because we've raised generations of males to just stay in adolescence, to go from being mama's boy to being his wife's boy. And the women just simply don't want it. That's why we see the majority of divorces coming from women. Women are the initiator of close to 80% of divorces that are filed today. Why? Because they don't want the effeminate males. They don't want childish men. They want masculine men who, who are domineering, not dominating, but domineering, who have a sense to build, to accomplish, has a goal in mind, has a direction for his life and for his family. And the women are craving that. And they're not seeing it in today's dating pool, in today's market. So there's a blurring of the distinctions. There's this failed experiment of feminism. And there is this war against masculinity, where they call it toxic masculinity, which in reality, what they're saying is toxic isn't masculinity whatsoever. The, The things that they're calling toxic are coming out of single parent households where the where the boy is being raised by a woman without a masculine influence because she was told that she can go breed and that it carries no responsibility whatsoever she has these children the man is out of the picture she's left to bear Eve's curse and Adam's curse now and the problem is is that she cannot feel Adam's shoes and so the the boys are brought up only with a feminine model at home, then they go to school and the majority of school teachers are feminine as well. And so a large portion of our boys are being raised with no male influence whatsoever, except for what they see on TV. And what do they see on TV? The worst attributes possible, the lowest of the low, the most secular, the most lost. And so their heroes that they see as identifying them as men are the uh, rap artists, are the country singers with the, you know, uh, with all the drunken debauchery and whoredom that's in country music today. Uh, They grow up hearing masculine voices, giving them clues and cues to be the worst version of man that is possible. uh, And they don't have the correction of dad at home. They don't have the correction of a male school teacher. They don't have the correction of anything there. They grow up absent 
of masculinity, and then the feminine influence in the man turns him into the worst possible kind of man, and then they call it toxic. It's not toxic masculinity. It's to- it is toxic effemininity, that they've raised their boys to be boys. They've not raised them to be men. They haven't grown them up with a future in mind with a destination, with a responsibility of what God has called them to be, to take responsibility for yourself, take responsibility for those around you, and make the world a better place. That's the Christian call, summed up just as tight as I can get it, with the prettiest bow on it that I can make. Take responsibility for yourself, take responsibility for those around you, and make the world a better place. That's what God calls men to do, to cultivate, to build up, to conquer, to subdue. To, that's God's call for men. But he never calls them to be brutish, never calls them to be barbarian, never calls them to be unco- uncultured or uncouth or unlearned. He never calls them to be just mere brute beasts. He calls them to be like his son, Jesus. And Jesus was the masculine, the best portrait of masculinity that you could have ever saw. And if you read the Gospels and you discover the true masculinity of Jesus in there, read it as looking for Jesus as a man, then you will see exactly what God designed men to be. Now, we see in this verse in Deuteronomy that there are things that are given to women, that pertain to a woman. And there are things that pertain to a man. So men, you know, that's going to really involve some things for us. We're going to have to look at this and uh, and really kind of discern what things are men's and what things are women's. And so men shouldn't wear women's clothes. So that takes out our cross dressers. That takes out our drag queens. Um, man, if you're listening to this podcast and you even thought that was remotely a, an acceptable thing, man, uh, you know I hate to you know kind of catch you out of the blue, but uh, yeah, we're not supposed to wear ladies' dresses. We're not supposed to wear lady high heels. We're not supposed to be dolled up with that. Um, that is a sin. So with that, uh, even to the local level, uh, where you know in an effort to raise proceeds for various different charities, it became a uh, hot thing to do 10 or 15 years ago that they would have these womenless beauty pageants. And these guys would would come in in the dresses and they'd parade around and it was supposed to be a comical event, but it, it was an abomination to the God. God said that those are women's clothes. Men shouldn't put on women's clothes because that's blurring the line between feminine and between masculine. God created them separate. God loves them both. He loves masculinity. He loves femininity, and he wants them in their proper context. So men don't adorn themselves with feminine things. Now, that is a purposeful thing, okay? When you purposefully do it, that is an abomination. So it's going to depend a lot upon culture. Uh, different cultures dress in different garbs. There's feminine and masculine in each. Um, you know, there are things that are men's. There are things that are women's. And so it's going to depend largely upon culture. Uh, so like the Scottish kilt uh, here in America, we're not Scottish. We don't wear kilts, okay? If someone puts on a Scottish kilt, that's still a man's garb. That's still a man's dress. So we're not given a specific dress code in Scripture that tells us, you know, that men wear pants and women wear dresses. We're, we're not given that, but we're given that men wear men's attire that society deems appropriate for men, and that women wear women's attire that God or that society deems appropriate for women. That when you look at a woman, you should be able to tell that she is a woman from her femininity. When you look at a man, you should be able to immediately be able to tell that he's a man because of his masculinity, of his outward adornment, of how he presents himself. It should be obvious that he's a man. So a Scottish kilt in, you know, in Scotland, that's a masculine feature. So wearing that, they would say that's a man's kilt 
that is a man. But over here, if we just go to the store and buy, you know, buy a, a woman's skirt and put it on, we can't say that's a kilt. We don't make skirts for men. And in our culture, we don't have skirts for men. Even though here a while back, it got cute for them to pay some celebrities and ball players uh, to put on, you know, these dresses and skirts and take pictures for some magazines. That was just stupid, man. And I'm not sure, you know, there's not enough money. To, to do that. There's not enough money to debase yourself and demoralize yourself. Um, you know, think of the comedian that, that was talking about, you know, anytime that a, a black celebrity, a black man starts to rise to power, the first thing they try to do is put them in a dress. And, you know, you think of Martin Lawrence with Big Mama's House. You think of all the Medea movies, all of these things that they, they want to put the dress upon the man to make fun of him, to, to laugh at him, to make him a joke. It's never a serious movie. It's always a, a, a hilarious you know, movie. It's a funny movie because it's actually making fun of him and his lack of masculinity. Even Misra's Doubtfire and some of these old ones, it's always of the mocking. It's always of a, of a comic relief to it because they're laughing at them at the ridiculousness of it. So, you know... If a guy accidentally, you know, with some of these shoes or things that kind of can go either way or look a certain way, if a dude buys a pair of women's shoes by accident and puts them on, is God going to strike them dead and send them to hell? No. No, it's an accident, okay? It wasn't intending for it to happen. It's kind of like when uh, uh, on The Office, when Michael Scott bought the, the woman's pantsuit, uh, the, the mysterious brand, uh, and uh, didn't realize that he was wearing a women's suit. You know, it was an accident. It's a, it's a, it's a, a goof. And so with that, um, that's okay. Uh, you know, as soon as you learn of it, you take it off, you make amends, you do what's right, uh, you don't repeat it again. But in that, the purposeful blurring of the lines, the purposeful, um, you know, devaluing that which is God's is something that we shouldn't do. So guys, no guy liner. You don't wear makeup. There's no womanless beauty pageant. You shouldn't be wearing the skinny glitter butt jeans. Uh, you know, you and your wife shouldn't be sharing a closet. Uh, you know, even, uh, you know, I've, I think it even goes as far, in my opinion, my interpretation, with even men painting their fingernails. That's not a cultural norm. That's not a historical cultural norm for American men to paint fingernails. That's something that's usually done out of rebellion or it's done something that's they try to be cutesy with their daughters and they let their daughters paint their fingernails. My daughters ain't never going to paint my fingernails. You know why? Because uh, nor shall a man put on a garment of a woman. So that's something that, you know, is for the woman. That's intended for her. It's women's nail polish. It's women's cosmetics. Even if they make a line of cosmetics that's for men, guess what? Historically, normatively, that is a female function. That's a female thing. So ain't happening with me. And so I wouldn't, you know, I would direct my sons. I would direct my church members not to participate in that kind of stuff. I would call them to repentance if they started to. Um, and not because it is some huge, outrageous, appalling sin. But wait, guys, is it not? Did God not just say that it's an abomination? So if God uses the word abomination to describe activities such as that, shouldn't we treat it with the same seriousness that our God treats it with? Should we make excuses for it when God calls it damnable? Should we think that it's cute when God calls it an abomination? Or should we just say, nah, baby, we're not going to do that because you are a beautiful young lady and God created you to be feminine. And those are things that, that are to enhance your femininity. But daddy's not a feminine. Daddy is masculine. And so men don't do these things. And so we should encourage them in their femininity without sacrificing our masculinity. We should teach them the divide of them uh, striving to be just as, as beautiful and feminine as God has ever designed them to be without looking at the masculine and thinking that we should cheapen the masculine by making it feminine or cheapen the feminine by making it masculine. 
So in that, no painting your fingernails, no getting girl haircuts and, you know, dyeing your hair, all that kind of stuff. No guy liner, no uh, glitter butt jeans, no pants suits, no, uh, you know, dressing uh, in these different feminine ways and feminine haircuts and things to try to make yourself look more androgynous or even sexless. That, too, is a sin to try to look sexless because God created male and God created female. And so these roles exist. Now, on the scale of male and female, on the scale of masculine, you're going to have some guys who are much more masculine. You're going to have some women who are much more feminine than other women. And then you're going to have some that aren't quite as masculine. And you're going to have some uh, women who are much, much less feminine than, than others. Now, when we grew up, we didn't have to call these transgenders and all this. We had other words for it. We had tomboys and sissies. And so given time, the sissy being around a group of men that the feminine male would acclimate towards the males. He would learn from them how to be more masculine. And you would see sissy boys who would grow up and be some really great men. And on the same side, on the feminine side, you would see some tomboys who were much more in, you know, didn't want the hair, didn't want the makeup, didn't want to dress, uh, you know, in in dresses and skirts and things and more interested in sports and, and, and all that than anything feminine. And over the course of time, they evolved, they learned, they grew out of it, and they became great women as well. And so uh, today, what we want to do is we want to typecast people at an age where they're still developing, at an age where they're still growing into themselves, still figuring out the world, still learning the ways uh, you know that they're supposed to be. And we want to cut off their development at an early stage and say, all right, well, that's it. This is what you're going to be forever. We need to stop puberty right here. We need to uh, engage in these surgeries. We need to engage in this castration or this chemical castration. Um, you know, We need to uh, fill them full of all of these artificial substances to stop the naturally occurring processes in their bodies from happening. And it never turns out good. There's always regret. There's always pain. There's no surgery that makes a man into a woman or a woman into a man. There's no surgery that allows men to birth children. There's no surgery that allows women to impregnate a womb. There's nothing that can happen in that model. All they can do is make these Franken-kids, these weird science experiments. They're doing greater damage to the kid to where most often if they just left the kid alone, they would grow and develop out of out of their sissiness or out of their tomboyishness or out of that awkward stage that a lot of kids go through as they start to enter into puberty. And now there's different hormones and there's different um, emotions that they're having to deal with, these different desires, these new chemicals being introduced into the brain. Uh, we stop short of allowing them to grow up and mature and we freeze them in this weird pre-adolescent world and then begin to do science experiments on them where they're less than genuine, they're less than honest most of the time, even on what the outcome of these are going to be. We see that the suicide rate actually increases after transitioning, which they're not even transitioning, they're just mutilating. So really all they're doing is creating eunuchs out of people. You know, some, you know, Bible tells us some are born eunuchs, others are made you know, eunuchs, and others make themselves eunuchs. Um, that some uh, are simply born with uh, some sexual dysfunction. Others are made that way. We see a lot in scripture where an army conquers another territory, and as they conquer that other kingdom, they would take their their best and their brightest, uh, some of their royal family, they'd bring them back to their home country, and they would actually castrate them. They'd make them eunuchs and make them servants in their own land. We see this with Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Uh, all of these guys were eunuchs. We see eunuchs in the Book of Philippians, in uh, or not Book of Philippians, the the um, in uh, uh, Acts, uh, we see a lot of these different ones. We see uh, even Ethiopia, uh, you know, eunuchs come into play. So that's a term, that's a use, you know, that's a phrase that's used throughout Scripture 
to show people who have been either born with some kind of dysfunction, those who were castrated by hand made that way. And then what Paul's referring to when he says that some make themselves this way for the kingdom is that they give themselves over to a singleness. Instead of pursuing marriage, instead of establishing a household, raising children, uh, you know, instead of all of that, they just choose to be single for the spread and proclamation of the gospel and that they have just decided to that that's a sacrifice that they want to make or that they feel called to and they endeavor in that way. And so uh you know this this thing today of transgenderism what they're actually doing is just making a lot of kids eunuchs. They're just castrating them. They're mutilating them. They're uh, pumping them full of chemical cocktails that make them into just science experiments. Just this weird other uh kind of thing. They're doing a great harm to our children. Uh, if you watch uh, Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary, uh, then you're going to see some of this. You're going to see uh, testimony from people who have went through this and come out the other side. And, um, and you know, they're just as miserable. They're trying to get, you know, they're trying to advocate against it to show people that this is not what it's supposed to be. You can't go from male to female. You can't go from male or from female to male that they are two distinct individual things. They exist on separate planes and that you can't blend the two without bastardizing and making an abomination out of each one, that you can't uh, jump from one to the other, that it's impossible. You absolutely cannot do this. So God calls men to be masculine. He calls women to be feminine. And he also calls it a sin, an abomination for women to adorn themselves with masculinity, for men to adorn themselves with femininity. We even see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul starts to list off people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And he says the effeminate are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Wow, that in and of itself is a disqualifier from salvation, that people who uh, try to tear down God's image of man and woman blur these lines between the two, that men who do not take up the, the mantle that God designed for the man to do, that instead they want to be feminine, they want to be girly, they want to be childish, they want to be all of these things. They want to be soft men. That's what the word effeminate literally means, is soft, and uh, that they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some people jump back and they'll say, oh, well, it's, uh, it, you know, that word there means catamite, which is a, uh, a figurative term for a young male sl- uh, sex slave that was taken uh, in war, battle, or purchased you know, in slavery. It, it's still a lady boy. It's still a feminine man, you know, something that God created to be masculine that is being taken and made feminine for somebody else's sick, twisted sexual perversion. So that doesn't exclude what it's talking about here. It further reinforces it. So these uh, these boys who were taken and purchased and forced into sex slavery yeah, they would eventually become effeminate. They would become soft. They would girl them up for the purpose uh, of the uh, of the sexual acts. And so in that, yeah, it still reinforces the point. God created men to be masculine, women to be feminine. He gives them separate roles. They endure separate curses. They need the same Savior. They need the same Jesus. Women are just as fallen as men are. They need Jesus. Men are just as fallen as women are. They need Jesus. And apart from Jesus' shed blood, apart from his reconciling, reconciling us back to the Father through his cross to live in his righteous resurrection, without that, we're all lost. We're all uh, damnable. But... What we have to see is in our salvation that we return to God's design, to God's plan. This is even, you know, we've seen this start to enter into and and infiltrate the church to where we have a lot of uh, very soft pastorate. 
You know, we have a lot of pastors, man, who just aren't manly men. They're effeminate in nature. They're kind of girly, soft, overly emotional, uh, constantly um, just sour and wanting to cry about something. Uh, they, they can't endure hard work. They're just uh, often injured. I mean, it is it is something that we see constantly. Uh, I like to call them the parasol pastors to where they they just you know, walk around with their little sun umbrellas to try not to get the harsh sun rays on their skin. And they're, they're just so, um, you know, they're just so concerned and overly, uh, um, you know, engaged in feminine things that they can't even hardly see straight. I mean, these are the dudes that just went straight from mama's house to the pastorium. You know, they went from getting us an allowance from mama to getting a salary from the church. And so no wonder that these, you know, pampered panderers, these, you know, what I like to call bedwetter Baptists, that of course, when it comes time to confront cultural issues, they're not going to do it because they've never had to stand up and fight for anything. They've never had to stand up to the bully. They've never had to draw a line in the sand and say this far, but no further. And instead, they shrink away. And anything just so that somebody ain't mad at them, anything they can do to curry a little favor, to prolong their their stay at the church, they never do anything good. They just constantly try not to do anything bad. They're constantly placating uh, to their enemies, to, to the ones that they should be fighting. Instead, they're trying to make friends with the ones that God calls them to preach to, and instead they're trying to pander to them. And so we see this on display with different churches now starting to ordain women as pastors, and there are no women pastors. There, there just aren't. There can't be. But in the society in which we live, this is one of the bones that they think that they can throw to the, to the mongrels in order to appease the crowd that's barking and sniffing at them. And so they begin to ordain pastors. We've even gone as far as, you know, that uh, here recently we had the news story of the church in Florida, the Methodist church in Florida, who brought a drag queen in that they were going to ordain as a pastor and they had two little girls on stage, and they're introducing them to this drag queen named Mrs. Pentecost, which is a riff off of the Jewish festival of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Day of Atonement, uh, where the Spirit fell in Acts chapter 2. And so we've gone that far to where we've effeminized the masculine, we've masculized the feminine to the point to where the line is so blurred that people don't even have common sense when it comes to this anymore. I said that the um, recently John MacArthur was preaching a sermon about this subject, and he points out that in Southern Baptist seminaries, as many as 50% of MDiv students are female. MDiv is the master's degree that typically pastors go after uh, to go into the go into the ministry. It, it's a pastoral uh, degree program, and that fifty percent of Southern Baptist seminaries, that fifty percent of the MDiv students were female. They said that eighty percent of the population is comfortable with female pastors. Sixty-two percent of practicing Christians said that they were okay with a female pastor. And yet in Scripture, we see no female pastors. When it comes to the division of female and male, God never gives a pastorate to the female. When it comes to masculine and feminine, He never puts, never puts the feminine in the pastorate role. Now, why? I don't know. And it's not for me to understand. It's not my distinction and it's not my rule. It's God's design. It's what God declared. It's what the Apostle Paul set forward in his letters. That's all we have to understand. But we see clearly in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that it talks about that the, the men should be praying with holy hands lifted up, free from wrath and doubting, and that at the same time, the women are supposed to be adorning themselves with modest apparel and propriety and moderation, not with braided hair, or gold or pearls or costly clothing, that the men should aspire to holiness and that the women should aspire to moderation. The women should aspire to modesty. 
All right. And so there's this pushing forward of the men towards holiness, towards outward expression of their faith, and at the same time that the women uh, not come in to parade themselves, but rather to make much of Christ, not to make much of their uh, of their apparel, of the cost of their adornments, of their hairstyle or their body shape, that that shouldn't be something that's on their mind as they're dressing to go out for the day that those things are created between the male and between the female, between the husband and the wife for mutual enjoyment. And then he goes on, he says, let the woman learn in silence with all submission. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. What that is is saying that the men in their push towards holiness, that at the church, the men should be the ones leading. The men should be the priest of the home. And when they come to the church, they're the priests in the church too. And so when there's a question to be asked, that she shouldn't have to ask the, uh, the pastor, that she should be able to ask her husband at home, and that he should have enough learning and enough wisdom to give the answer or to find the answer. And so it's not so much a, um, an against woman thing as it is a pushing the men to the forefront that the men should be the leaders, the men should be the spiritual authorities, the men should be the ones who are leading the charge because if the men aren't leading the charge in the church, the men are not leading the charge in their homes and their children are suffering for it and their wives are suffering for it as well. And so this verse isn't one to beat women up with or tell women, you know, you need to hush, but rather it's that the men should be Um, such a model of godliness to the woman that she doesn't even think about asking the pastor a question because she knows when she gets home, she's going to ask her husband the question and he's going to know the answer or he's going to be the one that knows how to look it up and find it. So it goes on and it says, For Adam was first formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there again, man was created first, woman was created out of man as his helpmeet, as the missing piece to the man, that the it wasn't good for the man to be alone. God created the woman for that purpose. And so that we see this beautiful, uh, uh, this beautiful connectedness, this beautiful conjoinity that's going on between these two. And so in that, the man uh, was created first. And so in that, not that he has first things towards God, but rather that God gave him the authority and the dominion and expected things out of him. Now, as we jump into chapter three, he starts to talk about the qualifications of an overseer or a bishop or a pastor, depending on your Bible translation, uh, which one you're using. It's going to use one of those three words. And in the very qualifications of a pastor, it says, this is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. That's two masculine words right there. Women aren't he. No matter you change your pronouns all you want to, uh, you can't change pronouns. Pronouns are pronouns. They're there. Language is language. You can misapply them or use them terribly, but it doesn't change them. All right, she's aren't he's just because she wants to be called a he. So in that, we have two We have two pronouns. We have two masculine articles here that show us masculinity. In fact, as you go all the way down through this, all the way through uh, verse 7, there's 11 masculine articles that are used in this. There are zero feminine articles except for wife. That's it. That's the only feminine article used is wife. And it's referring to that the husband should be the husband of one wife. That one means first. So he should be a husband of a first wife. Now, some people say, oh, he's supposed to be a one-woman man. That's cute, but that's stupid. All right, that that is... That he could have as many wives as he wanted to, as long as he had one at a time, as long as he was loyal to her until he wasn't loyal to her and could be loyal to the next one. That that's just a stupid application. So this is twofold. This is one, an exclusion of polygamy, and also it is an exclusion towards first marriages. So the pastor, the overseer of the church, has to be the husband of a first wife. 
all right, a wife of the first position. So a man desiring, he desires the husband of one wife, his own household. He should rule his own household well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For a man does not know how to rule his own house. How will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. We see 11 times where it says that the pastorate is the role of the man. It is he. So God just chose it. God picked it. God ordained it. Whatever the reasoning behind it, that's not for us to argue. What, what is for us to argue is to look at what the Word of God says, and we as Christians to say, that's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. So there's never been a female pastor. There never will be a female pastor. That's something that God chose to put into the masculine category, and that's where it resides. And you can try to blend it. You can try to move it. You can try to bastardize it all you want to. Try to explain it away with some really twisted up verses. And it just still doesn't move. It's in the masculine category. That's where God placed it. So men are the head of the household. Men are ultimately responsible. When God comes to judge a nation, he begins the judgment with the judgment of the men. The men are responsible for the sins of the children. They're responsible for the sins of the wife. They're responsible for everything. Now, they don't have to, they're not, they don't bear the punishment for it, but they do bear the responsibility for it. That we stop it, you know, that we see that in Deuteronomy to where if the wife makes a pledge, the man has a, the man has a certain number of days to override the pledge or to, to nullify the agreement before it becomes permanent. So she has the right to make it, but he has the right to overrule it as well because ultimately it's his household. He's responsible for it. He delegates things to her. The woman has a glorious role in the building of the home, the establishment of the family, the um, the, the economy of the home, the education of the home, the culture of the home. Those are all things that are incorporated into the, into the feminine. But in that, the establishment, the protection, the over seeing and the responsibility all comes down to the man. In the same way in the church house, he is responsible. God's going to call the man to an account. He's going to call the pastor to the account for what happens in his church. And so with that, he places the pastorate role in masculinity. So it's not for us to try to explain away. It's not for us to try to make excuses. It's not for us to say, well, what about Sally over there? She's a really, really awesome girl and she's a really good teacher. Well, God never said she couldn't be a teacher. God just said that she couldn't have authority over a man and that she couldn't be a pastor or a deacon. We also see in the description for deacons where it clearly places it in a man's in, in a man's responsibility, that office, because there again it says the husband of one wife. And so we see this built out. God gives the different roles. He establishes man and woman. He establishes male and female. He establishes masculine and feminine. He also says that there are masculine articles and that there are feminine articles. There are masculine items and there are feminine items that there is a a, um, a masculine feature or characteristics or character traits that God gives to men. There are also character traits and, and uh, characteristics that God gives exclusively to women. We are to celebrate the differences between the two. We are to champion the differences between the two. Men, be as manly as you can be. Women, be as feminine as you can be. And in the two, working together to be the, the greatest masculine for God, the greatest feminine for the glory of God, there we bring great beauty and great honor to his name and his design to where we see a semblance of perfection in this lost and fallen and broken world. 
So with that, guys, that's all the time we've got. I thank you for staying with us as we've had this discussion. Man, we've been all over the Bible. We started out in Genesis to Deuteronomy to uh, 1 Corinthians, ended up in Timothy. We've been all over the place. And, um, and as we've been able to see the difference here, these different themes that run all through it. So in that, uh, dig into the Word of God. Find out the responsibilities that God gives to you as a man. Read the great men of scripture and how God deals with them. Read the prophets and how God deals with the men and calls them to repentance, how he calls them to leadership. And then also, man, look at the great things that God designs the woman for. Look at the places where he gives grand glory to women. The places where he uses women to judge the do-nothing men of the day. And let us teach our sons to be men of God. And let us teach our daughters to be women upholding the glory of God. Thank you guys. This has been Brother Jonathan. This is the woodshed where we tell the truth even when it hurts. Thank you and God bless. I'll see you next time.